0: Um, last time I was here, well it wasn't here actually, it was in, in Hemskirk and we were, were there for the weekend away. A wonderful time, uh, but I really appreciate coming back and spending time with you here. And we're in, we're in the book of Exodus. I just wanted, before I start reading, it's a fairly substantial chunk that I'm gonna be reading out, the whole of chapter 18, if you have your Bibles with you. Um, but I just wanted to just take a moment, maybe maybe in reflection, just for us to think about what it is we do when we open the word of God. It's, it's not something that needs to uh, be argued over, it's the word of God. It's something that God wants to do, an action. And uh, I'd just like to pray for us as we, as we start, that God would speak to you in the here and now. That it's not just God's yesterday word, it's God's today word. God will speak. An amazing thing. Lord, we just want to gather before you, before the Holy Bible, and acknowledge that it's more than the sum of its parts as we uh, it, as we judge uh, the text. We look at it and we, we can pick it apart and we can talk about it, and I'll certainly be doing those things. But Lord, over and above all of that, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would speak to my heart. I pray that you'd speak to all of our hearts here. Lord, instruct us, correct us, Show us what kind of God you are. Show us the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that there would be uh, people moved in decisions for their own lives today as a result of your speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's read the whole of chapter 18, and uh, the words will appear on the screen in Dutch and in English. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and, with his, and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent Then Moses told his father in law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know. That the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father in law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father in law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father in law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing's too heavy for you. You aren't able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them to know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all his people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father in law and he did all that he'd said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own country. So, we've got two things to look at, really, and they all center around this person, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And uh, on the first slide, I didn't even put Jethro's name, I just put Moses' father-in-law, because I don't know how many of you, uh, li- like me, like a little bit of the detail, but if you notice, Jethro was referred to as Moses' father-in-law how many times in that passage? A lot. That's right. That was exactly the right answer. Someone else who's keen on details, that's good. But it, it becomes a bit of a mantra, and you want to, when you're reading the Bible, look out for things like that. Like, oh, this is repeated. Maybe the author's trying to tell us something of this. Maybe God wants to communicate something very specific in this uh, detail that keeps getting repeated. So just to recap where we've got to so far, here's a map uh, which will show, uh, show a rough idea of the Exodus. So you've got Egypt here, you've got the Sinai Peninsula there, you've got Midian here, and Jethro is said to be the priest of Midian. Now, Midian is one of the sons of Abraham, and he's not uh, part of this this covenant people. There's there's something else going on. And so Jethro is outside of Israel. He's outside of the people of God. Uh, Yeah, obviously he's very involved with uh, with Moses. Moses has spent a lot of time with this man. He's uh, been given one of his daughters as his wife, Zipporah. And there's some more details to go into there. But what's happened in the bit immediately preceding this is that you've had the crossing of the Red Sea. So fleeing away from Pharaoh, from the armies, the sea is open so the people can cross over into the desert where they are at the moment. And then it's from Midian that Jethro comes to visit Moses and brings his sons and his, uh, his wife to him. So that's, that's what's been going on. They've just immediately come from fighting the Amalekites, which, if you remember that episode, you have this foreign army who come aggressively against Moses, and it can be puzzling for us to see why these kind of wars are allowed by God, encouraged by God sometimes, and in this case, God says, I'm going to make the Amalekites my enemies forever, I'm going to wipe them out completely. And the reason seems to be, as I think you've probably heard before, that the Amalekites not just that they're a foreign people, it's not just an arbitrary ethnic cleansing thing going on. No, it's actually that they have come against the people of God. Now what you have in Jethro is someone who's coming from another land, but he's not coming as an enemy. And the treatment is so different, it's marked between that section that you will have just read and then this section in Exodus 18. Oh, okay, so people can come from outside the people of God and be welcomed in. Not just welcomed him, put to good use. And we'll see that. So we're going to see Jethro in his meeting with Moses, in what we see as a conversion moment, actually. Him bowing down, giving sacrifice, honoring God. And then all of the things that God in his providence has crafted in this life of Jethro, put to use for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of God's plan. So... We, uh, we see his name, Jethro, that's the first thing to think of. Jethro, it means something like His Excellency. This is not a minor name. I don't know if any of you have called your children Jethro, but you might want to consider it. You know, give, give, give them ideas above their station, His Excellency. So it is, it's a royal name. This man is a man who is honored already. In, in uh, chapter 2 of Exodus, he appears, obviously, to uh, to give his daughter in marriage to Moses, and he, he has seven daughters, and he's, he's referred to as Ruel there, Ruel, or friend of God. So he clearly has esteeming names. Uh, both of the names that are given to him here are, show something of the dignity of the guy. He's, he's revered. And he's referred to here as Moses' father-in-law around 13 times, depends what you count, but that, that, that phrase, Moses' father-in-law, just getting repeated like a drum, being banged over and over again. Uh, it reminded me of what you have in the book of Ruth. Who, who's familiar with the book of Ruth? You have this story of Ruth, and she, she is always referred to in that book as Ruth the Moabites, Ruth the Moabites. And the Moabites, again, are foreign people, a foreign people from outside the people of God. And Ruth is, uh, takes on that, that kind of mantle, a foreign devotee, she devotes herself puts herself under the authority of God's people and of ultimately the one true God. So, let, first, let's just turn and look at uh, Jethro's salvation itself. This is what, what i term Jethro's salvation. And looking particularly at the verses of 10 and 11 in chapter 18, it says this, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you. This is him speaking to Moses. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered could be saved. He's rescued you, he's saved you, he's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians who set them free from slavery. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. He's going to have some familiarity with the Lord of Israel. He's going to have familiarity with Yahweh as amongst other gods, amongst other rulers that, that are conceived of over the lands. But here, he is seeing something new, isn't he? It's not that he's, he's seeing this name of the Lord as new. He's, he's got some familiarity. And it even says earlier on, and this is significant for us today, it says earlier on that the reason that he comes to meet with Moses is that he's heard of all that God has done. So he even describes it as a God. He's saying he's heard of all that God has done in delivering them from uh, the hands of the Egyptians. So that's, that's enough for him to say, right, okay, I'm going to get Moses' wife and I'm going to get his children and I'm going to take them to meet with him. But when he hears it from Moses, when he hears the story of what God has done from Moses, it provokes worship. It provokes praise and it pro- provokes conversion. So... You have this instance here where he's saying, look, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. He's delivered you. He's delivered you. This is not really news for him. It's not news for his head, but it's news for his heart. He said, no, I I see it. Here it is in the flesh. God's salvation. God's salvation incarnated. And um, I think that if there's a, a vital thing about the Christian message, is that it be incarnated. It needs to be in human clothes. You can, you can have an intellectual understanding. Oh, yes, Christians think that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, and then he died to pay for the sins of people, and then he rose again that they might have a new life. And it could be super dry. It could be, like, absolutely arid. But if you see someone for whom that has become their truth, their way of life. You can see, oh, there's there's a fundamental shift in the ontology of this person. They've become something else. And it's the doing of God. That information that was merely information becomes something, something wonderful has happened here. Something wonderful has happened here. It could happen for me. And Jethro immediately sees this. It's, it, it, it's striking. You know. Obviously, you've got to take the fact that this is an ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, but it struck me that he says he turns up with Moses' wife and his sons, who he hasn't seen for ages. And it says, and he ran and he kissed his father-in-law. Okay. Different ways. And I, I, think, I think that, obviously, there, there is a distinct cultural difference here. But there's... there's Father-in-law, here you are. And if you, if you know the story, you know that there has been some friction between Moses and his wife. Um, it, it's, it's striking that she hasn't gone on the exodus with them, that actually she hasn't gone into the land and then back out. It says that he sent her back. He sent her back. And it could be that he sent her back because it's too dangerous, but if you cast your mind back, you'll remember that uh, there was that episode where she calls him her bloody husband if you remember rightly. She, she says, you, you've become a bridegroom of blood to me, which is like, you're my bloody husband. Like You're always doing this sort of thing, trying to run, a, run in he- ahead of God, do things your way. And uh, she has to rush into an emergency circumcision on her son. That's for you to read, you, you can go and brush up on that. But there's definitely been a friction that's going on here. And really, they're obscured from the story. You don't hear of Zipporah anymore. You, but, Jethro is the focus of what's going on here. Um, I'm reminded, and I wanted to share a story with you about a word that God spoke to our church in Brighton a number of years ago. And uh, it was to, to a man named Steve Walford, who I, th- I think has come over here to speak before. He's one of our elders. And um, he, he was praying with us in a prayer meeting and said, I feel like God's saying to us that he's going to bring pillars from other temples in this city. Pillars from other temples. And what he means by that is he's gonna take people who are prominent, who've been raised up, who've been given authority, who are like the royalty of Brighton, of institutions, of different places, and he's gonna take those pillars from other temples and he's gonna place them into the house of God. Now, what happens if you take a pillar from a place? Well, actually, you do two things. You take a strength from one place and you bring it into the house of God. What happens to the temple that you've taken a pillar from? You'd have problems, wouldn't you? So a a pillar goes, a pillar goes, and a belief system, a way of searching, a way of trying to be fulfilled in life, a way of trying to be spiritually well, disappears in the city because God says, no more of that, this. And God does it all the time, restores the work of his hands, brings about revival, and I think... That's something of what's going on here. You see Jethro. I mean, what happened to worship in Midian after this? What happens? What happened to Jethro's household? Everything's changed. This man, this one, his excellency, his excellency, is no longer the excellency of this house. He's the excellency in the house of God as a servant under the true gods. And I think that God wants to do that in all of his true churches. I think that actually it's not just that you operate as a dissenting voice in a culture where you go around saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You say, this is right. You say, the Lord is building the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, those labor in vain who labor on it, but he is building the house. And your labor isn't in vain. If you're part of the church here, your labor's not in vain. You're laboring for the church that he is building, you're laboring for the house of God. And he'll bring people from other temples to do that as well. It can be remarkable, that can be a really shocking thing to see. And it might be shocking for you as well. There might be, it might be that you come to the Lord later in life, and you actually find it's quite confusing to find yourself converting from this to this. Your whole worldview goes on. And you think to yourself, are these parts of my life that were crafted in the dark, you know, in confusion, in times where I wasn't worshiping the Lord. Are they of any use? And the answer here seems to be yes, actually, that God is a redeeming God. He crafts the whole of a life. So he might have been working on your life in ways that you can't understand in decades that you might class as your wasted decades. You think, oh, I could have followed the Lord. I could have, I could have been walking in the light. Yes, you could have. But in his mercy and in his providence, he crafts your life for his glory He delivers you for the building of his temple. This is what happens to this man. And what you're going to see in the second section is him deploying that. He goes straight to work. It says the next day, it's bring your father-in-law to work day. And he starts bossing his son, his son-in-law. He sits there, accepted by God. I think, why is it repeated? Why does it say the father-in-law of Moses over and over again? Why does it say it? Because he's accepted of God. You know, there's plenty of things you could say in addition to that. You could say, oh, look, it was a culture that revered father in laws as well as father. I think that there's something else going on here. I think that it's actually saying, this man is accepted of the Lord, and this is what the text wants you to know. In the same way that you have in the book of Ruth, Ruth the Moabite has. What does it want you to know? It wants you to know she's an outsider, and the Lord loves her. He's brought her right in, he hasn't brought her in as a, as a temporary guest or a tourist. He said, no, you're established in the house of God. You are going to be an incarnator of my gospel in the place where I place you. And the gospel has to be told as personal story. When the gospel is told as, as I said, a dry intellectual propositional thing, look, the Lord's good, and he might reach out and and grab people. There's that very famous story of uh, Charles Spurgeon testing the acoustics in one of the big buildings in London where he was going to do a conference, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's a workman up in the rafters somewhere who just said, yes, Lord. (laughs) Just suddenly gave his life. That's not the usual way. The usual way is that people turn up, and look, I'll give you, I'm going to give you the top, top evangelism tip, the number one. You ready? You turn up and tell them what the Lord has done. And you believe it. That's the thing. You believe it, and you feel, no, he has done this, he's done it to me. You turn up, and you, you don't tell them. you don't persuade them. oh gosh. You don't even need to. If you live living with this thing, you turn up and you are the persuasion. I'm not saying that you don't, don't try and answer people's questions. There's clear advice that, you, that you're there to take thoughts captive in your own mind and you're there to uh, work very hard for people so that they can understand the reason for the hope that is in you. But first, they've got to see the hope that's in you. They've got to see, oh, look, oh, actually, there's a hope in that guy. He's hoping for something. She's hoping for something. Beyond herself, what is it? Be ready to give the reason at that point. Don't give the reason before they've asked why you seem so hopeful. And what you have here is a clear example of being situated. It matters that you are here in this place at this time called to this mission as well. If you're a member here of Liberty Church, it matters that you're in Amsterdam. It matters greatly that you're part of this city. Now, does that mean that you need to go full Dutch? Does does it mean clogs? What does it mean, right? How far have I got to go with this? Windmills are expensive. It matters that you care about God's throne being established in Amsterdam. It matters that you care about this city. Hudson Taylor was a very famous uh, missionary in the 19th century to inland China. And uh, when he went out to China, he looked like this, yeah. So he looked looked young, dashing, good. He administered the gospel and he incarnated it there. But he realized that actually there needed to be a sense of going native. People really, really took him to task for this. They thought he was ridiculous because he said, every time I go to try and tell people of the good news. They just look at me and they say, why have you got short hair? Why, wh- where's the beard? Why they just think I'm mad and they just wanna talk about the food I eat and the way that I look. He said, I need to get these barriers out of the way. So he ended up looking like this. <laughs> now look, it's not for everyone, but he, he's being a student of the place that God's put him. He's reading the things they read. He's, he's removing obstacles to the gospel. Isn't it a pain where, you, you know, he's gone to a place, oh, I've got the good news of God. I've, I've been given a deposit by God. I'm in debt to everyone until they hear the gospel, like the Apostle Paul says. And then you go and try to tell them, and they're like, where's your mustache? What's, what's going on? He just got the obstacles out of the way, grew the pigtail, put the hat on. Now he can get on with business, okay? Because he, he, he's removing these things from out of the way. And to, for us as well, there, there is... An application for every one of you here, no matter how long you're in town for, to just settle in your heart that you're here as an ambassador of the kingdom of God in this place. You're here to incarnate the gospel and that doesn't just mean having the story ready, having descriptions ready, it means being here, being in the fabric of the place, not being a tourist, It's all right for me. I can say that. I'm allowed to be a tourist. I'm on holiday. But for you, you need to be here. You need to be embedded. Is there a mentality that you have where you say to yourself, well, I could be anywhere. You know, the gospel's the gospel. You've got the principles, right? The gospel's the gospel. I witness to him wherever I am. Yeah, good, good. You're here. It's good that you're witness to him wherever you are, and you should do that. But you're here settle in your heart I'm here I'm here until he tells me otherwise I'm here for the next 10 years unless he tells me otherwise I'm going to invest my life I'm going to sow my best years into the flourishing of this family of God this particular one as well Liberty Church I'm going to see it flourish I'm going to see it happen by the will of God I'm going to stake my flag in the ground and say I'm here Lord I'm here So there's a settling in your heart to incarnate where you are. Ruth said this. She said in uh, uh, verse 16 of chapter 1, when she was committing herself to Naomi, and if you remember, Naomi had two daughters-in-law. She had two sons who uh, very improbably and very tragically died, and then she's left with these two daughter-in-law, and she says, look, you two, you might as well just go home to your families now. It's, It's all gone rather wrong. And... One of the daughter-in-law said, yep, it has gone rather wrong. I think I'd better go. I think I'd better just leave this now. And Ruth doesn't say that. She said, it says, but Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Well, the parallels with Jethro become even stronger, I think, that you just suddenly see your God will be my God. And Jethro's words, I see that the God you worship is greater than all the other gods. Might as well forget about the other gods. There's, there's no comparison. They don't do this kind of deliverance. They don't do this kind of salvation. You see it in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 8:5, where Paul is talking about the Macedonians. He talk, talks specifically about their generosity. He talks about how uh, their great poverty, this is a very strange verse, because he talks about their great poverty and their great generosity combined for them to give out of their material wealth, sacrificially. And, he, and they do that because the Lord has taken care of their hearts. And there's a twofold process that needs to be seen. It says, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Again, how do you give yourself to the Lord? You give yourself to the Lord by giving yourself to the local church, by giving yourself to his incarnate, stationed mission not just saying in a very general sense I'm a citizen of the world I'll take the gospel wherever I go yes great you will put your roots down put your roots down in faith but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us that's the right order by the way so for, for you here today is to incarnate the message for Amsterdam and I don't know about you but you should hear that not as just a job incarnate the message for Amsterdam but has a hugely exciting proposition. That's Amsterdam. That's Amsterdam. This amazing, world-changing city. This place that has other temples all over the place. Other temples of people reaching out with desires, people reaching out with ideas. And doesn't doesn't the Lord have pillars in other temples that he wants to bring into the house of God? That he wants to bring in to build redeem the whole of creation that he wants to save individuals but he wants to redeem the world he wants to he wants to bring in the riches of the nations to the house of god for his glory that's what happens and you get a glimpse of it in this story of jethro so let's move on to look at jethro's advice he's been brought in he's been accepted by god and he's been brought in and deployed he's been put to use so the problem that you have is very clear. It's, it's, um, and it's strange as well, isn't it? You need, to, you need to note that Moses has gone. Look at the transition. Day one, he's there and he speaks to his father-in-law. It, this awestruck conversation, you can't believe it. We've had hard times. We've had the Amalekites on our back. But God won for us there and he won in a different way. He made, made us work. And then at the Red Sea before that, he said, stand back and watch what I will do and watch and see your deliverance, see your salvation. God is all over this. He's done things in different ways, and he's always the one working for us. He's always the one providing. Day two. Moses sits down. The whole nation queues up to talk to Moses. It's the shift from this expectation of God coming and providing, coming and doing things. And we've seen a progress from sit back and watch what I'll do to... Get ready to fight, and I'll win for you. To dependence on themselves. This is bizarre. And Jethro Jethro double checks it as well. He's like just so I can check. What are you doing here? He says, Well, the people queue up, and like, you're talking about two or three million people. You know, this is this is not small. People, and what what do they queue up for? They queue up for justice. They're queuing up, saying, can you judge for us? Can you judge justly? You know, he stole my cow. That, that kind of you know, stuff coming to the front and sort, sort out all of the pastoral problems for us and, and tell us what God would say. And there's this one, this one critical point that they're seeing. This is the wisdom of God in Moses, and that's it. And Moses just sits there and says, well, they come to me, I ask God, and then I tell them. Right, okay. Jethro sees a problem with this immediately. You've got these people, two, three million of them, all former slaves as well, so no idea about government. They've they've just come out of servitude, and the way that they do it is like a super bureaucratic dictatorship type thing, um, which seems no fun at all. Jethro sees it immediately, and he says, this isn't going to work. You're going to need to divide the labor. If it's a big deal, they come and bring it to you. If it's not, you divide it out. Now, I I, I expect there's been many sermons preached on the pragmatics of this. I'm not really going to go there. It makes sense, doesn't it? It's just like sheer common sense. Okay, if it's a big deal, you take it to the leadership. Otherwise, they have trusted people that they've appointed. And his priorities are very clear. He says this in his advice, and you can break it down to uh, three things that he's saying, pray, teach, and delegate, which um, the first thing... Makes a lot of sense. Represent the people before God. Well, that, that means that you've sure that you're there praying. Hear from God. Make sure that you as a leader are leading in the spirit, that you're leading people in the ways of the Lord. Teach them. Make sure that you then go and tell the people what it is, and especially the leaders, those that you've delegated to, those who you've put in charge of people need to be carrying the DNA. They need to be carrying the same joy, the same gospel, the same justice, the same grace. They need to have these things working with them. And you delegate to the trustworthy. It says, place such men over the people. And if you notice there, it says, you know, you're looking for people who hate a bribe. Oh, I thought that was great. That is a great qualification. I wouldn't have thought of that. Guys who hate a bribe. It's going to be something that is just completely observable in a hand to mouth society where they're working there, they're bartering for things all of the time. If you've got someone who says, no, I'm not even going near corruption, the corruption is disgusting to me, I want nothing to do with it, Jethro's saying, well, that's your criteria right there. You're looking for someone who's saying, no, I don't don't want dirty hands. I want clean hands, and I want to be before the Lord, and I want to give myself first to the Lord, and then to you. And they're saying to Moses, I'm going to give myself to you as unto the Lord, because you are are, uh, our leader, you are hearing from God. And this is picked up in all sorts of other places. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 1, it's mentioned in Numbers 11, as, the, as basically the way they then structure themselves as a nation. That's how it happens. There's this delegation, this um, glad uh, submission to authority that goes on. But it's not, it doesn't just stop there. It's also in Acts 6, when the church is established, you see Jesus choose his disciples this way. And then in Acts 6, where I'll just read to you the, uh, the beginning of Acts 6 so you know what's going on there. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples, and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. There's no edge to that, by the way. It's not like, you know, serving tables is for the scum preachings for the priests you know this is not the idea at all the idea is we need to be doing this job of standing before the lord for the people actually you can see how it threads through to this advice of jethro way back when therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute again full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What happened? A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, Pillars from other temples. You've got the same thing happening again. The wisdom of God in dividing out the labor. And you can see from the makeup of the group that actually they're people from other nations in Acts 6. They're people who've been brought in from all different walks of life, but they have that common denominator of being men of good repute, of being those, you say, look, they're fatherly, I can trust them. I can trust them they're not there for filthy gain they're not there for they're not they're those who hate a bribe they're <laughs> those who just shun it it's like no that's not the lord's way we want we want everything to be full of his joy full of the holy spirit so again mirrored pray we will devote ourselves to prayer teach and to the ministry of the word it's not right for us to stop preaching you need to know the counsel of god you need to know the joy of the gospel and will delegate to the trustworthy. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom. Can you picture that cue? Can you picture the cue for Moses? That was the thing that struck me as I was reading the text again and again. I was just thinking to myself, this, you could read this as something minor. He sits down, but it says he sits down from, from the beginning of the day till dusk. He's there all day. Immobilized, you know. Moses immobilized. He's just there, taking. Oh, she took your cat. Blah blah blah. Yeah, he's bogged down. And this is God's man. Jethro, folks. What are you doing? What's happening? Well, what's the application for us here? I think that you've got to visualize that cue for yourself and ask yourself: Are you in the queue? Are you still depending and waiting for someone else to come and broker the relationship between you and the Lord? For someone to broker your access to God? For someone to tell you what to do? I mean, it's okay for a time, I think. But the Lord wants everyone presented mature in Christ. It's actually a sense that maybe even today, it's your day to get out of the queue. To realise, no, actually, I need to go and say to the leadership, "What do you want me to do?" I'm actually, I'm I'm not a passenger. I've made it my business to be in this city. I feel God's led me here. I'm putting my flag down. I'm putting roots down. What can I do? Or even say to your friends, if it's too much to go to a leader and say, "How can I, how can I serve?" You know, being brave, being vulnerable. Say to a friend, "Do you think I'm a passenger?" Do you think I'm a passenger in my faith, or do you think that I'm actually there looking to lead? Do you think I could lead? Ask those sort of questions of each other. It makes for an interesting conversation. I wouldn't ask anyone those sort of questions, but ask people that you trust. Ask people that you know, actually know, this person watches my life, they know how I respond, they know how I act. Ask, do you think I'm a passenger? Do you think I'm a consumer in my faith? Friends, that is a huge risk in our day and age, isn't it? You've got a bunch of churches you can choose from. It's very easy to treat it like the rest of your life. Should I have Prime? Shall I have Netflix? Should I go here? Shall I go there? You have to buck the trend. You have to buck the trend. You have to buck the trend and commit. That's, that's not this day and age. But friends, it's where life is. It's such a lie of the enemy that commitment is death. There's this uh, T-shirt that you can buy. You probably buy it in one of the tacky shops here. And it has a, has a man, like a, it's a stick man, and he's, he's getting married. So next to it, he's just a normal stick man, cool stick man. And then she's wearing the dress that she's always dreamed about. And it says underneath, game over. He's got married. Game over. It's such a lie. It's such a lie. All of our happiness, all of our happiest moments are self-forgetful. Think about it, it's absolutely true. Serving people is not a loss. Ser- giving of your money consistently to the work of God in the church as your number one priority, never a loss. Always a joy, and I'm speaking from personal experience. It makes it harder when you're on a church staff, because everyone's like, oh yeah, you would say, that. no. Look, I said that when I was a student at university and had like minus whatever. I I trusted the Lord with my first fruits. Anything that came in, I gave it to my church. And I felt joy, felt joy. I didn't feel like a slave to money. In my relationships, committed myself to my wife. Said, no, I don't want to date you, I want to marry you. I want us to have a family, I want us to do these things. I still speak to my friends, and now I'm getting older. I've done this for a couple of decades. You speak to your friends from school, and they're still going around the world. They're still listless. They're still empty. It's hard. It's a difficult, difficult time to be alive. I'm not saying that to be cynical about anyone. Not at all. I say it out of compassion. Because I feel like I've found the secret of life. I feel like the Lord has delivered my life for eternity. He's given me life in all its fullness. But what does that look like? Well, one of the ways it looks in this day and age is that he's made me something other than commitment phobic. He's actually said, I've got a secret for you. Commit. I've got a secret for you. Give your life for other people. I can remember one of my friends on his wedding day. I was at his wedding reception. One of my first, one of the first friends to get married. So like, it was pretty young. I wasn't married. And I was like, mate, it's such an amazing day. It's so wonderful. How do you feel? And he just said to me, give your life to building people up. He's not a sanctimonious guy. And I was really surprised that he said it. He said, here's advice for me. Give your life to building people up. When I say that, I think that God's given me that secret. Maybe that was the time that he gave it to me. Because he does that. He speaks to you through other people. Don't miss out. Let me just close by talking about one final thing. What is it that Moses is doing? Moses is there to dispense justice. He's there. All the people in the queue are wanting him to judge. Say, like, come and judge this situation. Come and show me the right way. Come and punish this one. Or, Or just level the playing field. Make things right here. And he's trying to hear and he's trying to judge. And the solution that's presented to him by Jethro is dispense the labor out, delegate to people. But I wanna talk about Jesus as our judge. Jesus as our judge It can be heavy. Immediately when you say, it. Jesus as our judge, am I gonna be judged? I thought, do you know, you know, actually, the most popular verse of the Bible in the UK, it used to be, or the most well-known one would be, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, it's judge ye not, lest ye be judged. <laughs> that's, that's no lie. That is the most, and not many people know anything from the Bible in the UK. But what they do know is, no, you can't judge me, because I've read that bit. It says, judge ye not, lest ye be judged. And they're forgetting that actually, no, there's a just judge who's going to judge all people. You're not told not to judge. You're told not to be the final judge. You're not told not to discern right from wrong. That's ludicrous. No, Christians, they need to be judging right from wrong, calling out evil, saying, no, that's not right. But there's a just judge who's gonna come and present final judgment, and he's gonna judge every single person. He's gonna judge me. He's gonna judge all of you. That can be terrifying. I think our conception of it can make it terrifying, but I wanna draw our attention to a verse from Isaiah 33, 22. Which joins this up for us. It says this. This is is a poetic piece where the writer is talking about how God fights for his people. And it says this The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. You see, friends, as a Christian, you are in the unique position of standing before the judge before whom all of us will stand, the one who made all things for his pleasure and having him as your savior as well. He's one who can judge justly, perfectly. He's also one who can hear perfectly. Moses couldn't hear everyone. That was the problem. So he had all of these people queuing up for justice, queuing up for things to be made right. We're told that the final judgment is gonna be for the Christian, the wiping away of every tear, the setting right of all things, the end of death, the end of the experience of death for all of us. And we're invited into this. We know that we can trust that he hears us. It says uh, in 1 Peter 5 verse 7 that you should cast all of your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. You should cast all of your worries onto this judge because he's your savior. He's your savior too. I want to close now. I want us to come and worship the Lord God in faith, I want us to come knowing that the one who judges us is the one who offers salvation and deliverance. They're one and the same. Lord Jesus, we want to raise up holy hands today. Lord, we want to take time to repent in our hearts of sin. We want to make it our business not to leave this place without confessing sins to each other, of cleaning the slate, knowing that you are faithful to forgive us, Lord. It says, if anyone confesses his sins, you're faithful to forgive. And Lord, we want to come now to receive. We want to come and receive the joy of the Holy Spirit as we worship. We want to be stirred up in our hearts for your cause, for your kingdom, and with your love for your church. In Jesus' name, amen.